Hello, welcome to the first education episode of season one of the Warfighter podcast. I'm Tom Constable and this is Colin Hillier. Hello, welcome. So this is the first episode, so what we'd like to do is introduce the concept, talk about our sponsor and then go into the main crux of what we're going to discuss today, which is awesome and it's definitely one for the geeks. So the purpose of these episodes is essentially designed to be evergreen content. Therefore, it's relevant regardless of whatever time or year that you're listening to this episode. It's a deeper dive into a topic where maybe on the main podcast, we'd skirt over it. But this is an opportunity to, to geek off, to go deeper into it and really better understand it. And it's within topics within training, within defense, or even simulation and training within defense. And essentially, it is going to be interactive. We don't want it to be a lecture for one person. Colin and I are here to ask those questions to ensure that everyone understands and is follows along the, the deeper dive that we go in. Colin, is that about right from your perspective? Uh, yeah, and we're all busy these days. So sometimes we don't have the time to read or get into the reference material. So hey, this could be a cheat guide. If you're off to a meeting about a certain topic, and you just want to gen up on this, then here's 20 minutes, half an hour, where you can then be slightly more of an expert. Yeah, and the, you know, I'm excited for the guest we've got on today really is that you know, in terms of defining an expert for the topic, he is the right man for the job. Before we jump into that topic, Colin, it's massively important to thank the people that have made this possible, who's our sponsor. So Conductor is our education sponsor. They themselves have built a hybrid warfare and crisis simulation platform that essentially gives like a synthetic internet and delivers realistic virtual information to the to user to train different kinds of things like information operations, media operations, homeland security, counter-terrorist operations, or even humanitarian disaster relief. And the cool thing about these guys, top right corner of their website, and the website URL is in the show notes, you can literally press the try it now button, which I've been doing, and you can really experience their synthetic training scenario without any delay. Colin, the thing that you don't know is that in the background, in the last few weeks, I've been working with their chief creative officer to create a bespoke training solution just for you based on something that's in my brain to test your ability at crisis management. Okay, now I'm worried. And I've had options, you know, that could have been a counter-terrorist operation. Uh, one, of the, one of the options we discussed was a monkeypox outbreak and whether or not you I, can I deal want with... I know what you know about me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to go into this too much detail, but, but next education episode, I will be revealing all. It should be ready to go. And I'll be setting the gauntlet down to see whether or not you can respond to this crisis effectively. Okay, we'll, we'll look forward to that. So just to introduce this uh, session, it's all about the 3D modeling pipeline. Specifically, we're asking Chris to talk a bit about how that relates to more modern game engines and how that has changed from more legacy platforms. As you said, it's a quick primer, a quick reference guide for anyone else to dig in a bit deeper, mainly factual based with a, a few few silly questions from Tom and I. Essentially, get a better understanding of the sausage machine, what goes into it, how's it done, what's all the gory details. So I hope it's useful. Yeah, and I was very keen for this to be one of the first education bits that we do. We are in a privileged position, aren't we, Colin, that we can pick what we discuss and in what order. And because our background is very much in the simulation space, we saw maybe a lack of comprehension around the complexities involved in creating 3D models. And I wanted this to be an opportunity to really clear that pipeline up so that people understand the complexities, but also because you understand the complexities can really set these requirements effectively. So here we go. Here is the man that knows, Chris Torchia from Vigilante Design. 
Well, Chris, welcome and thank you for agreeing to be the first person to lead us through our education series. And the topic is 3D modeling and the process behind modeling within modern game engines. So first of all, could you give us a bit of a background? What do you do in your day job? How come you know so much about this? Thank you for inviting me on. Looking forward to this conversation. A little bit about me. I started perhaps back in 2009. I was basically working on game mods for Arma 1. And it was just before Arma 2 was coming out. And I was learning how to manipulate video games while I was working full-time as a technical scientist at a biotech company. My background actually is in biochemistry. I started picking apart video games, learning how they worked. And I belonged to a couple of online communities, forums where I was getting advice. And at some point I met somebody who worked in the defense space and he told me, hey, you're pretty good at doing this. I was making uh, reskins for soldiers and new 3D models of weapons. Because uh, you're, you're pretty good for at doing this. So you could be getting paid for it instead of making free content for video game releases. <laughs> so I said, I like the, the sounds of that. So I started working for a defense company that was an offshoot uh, using an iteration of the Arma game engine. Arma, if for people who don't know, was a video game that was created back in the late 90s, and it was the sequel to Operation Flashpoint. It's a full-scale, open-world, first-person shooter, combined arms type of video game. Some people noticed that, hey, this game could be quite useful for simulation and training purposes, and eventually a, a simulator was branched off of this game. Eventually it would be known as Virtual Battlespace, VBS. I got involved only a little bit with VBS in the beginning, but uh, I started off mainly creating game content for Arma 2 and Arma 3. But on the side, I was creating content that would eventually make its way into Virtual Battlespace. So that's kind of how it started. From there, I realized that uh, actually what I'm better at than, than making models directly myself is organizing and managing teams of people who are doing this. So I registered a, a DBA, just a name to do business as, Vigilante, it's back in 2010, I guess. We started working on various projects, Arma 3, DayZ, which is a zombie simulator game made by the same company that made Arma, uh, as well as eventually a lot of the content that would find its way into DVS product for the UK Ministry of Defense, which of course is based on VBS 3. I started working full-time for... Bohemia Interactive Simulations. I was hired as technical director of art for what's now known as VBS4. At the time, we were just calling it Blue. And I was proposing and uh, implementing some of the visual systems that uh, are connected to the whole Earth rendering. And so now, Chris, you run a company called Vigilante with a sister studio called Plan A that is involved in both the making sort of AAA content for games that we might know and love, as well as work in the defense side. Is that right? That's correct. Um, starting in late 2019, I decided to take this a little bit more seriously and go full-time with Vigilante Design, this time not as a DBA, but, but as an actual legal entity. And just a couple of months later, COVID happened, lockdowns happened. It's been an interesting challenge to have to hire and build a company when you can't be co-located, but it actually uniquely positioned us as well because we're natively remote and didn't have any adjustment time. We're already doing remote work and we, for us, it was just business as usual. So yeah, that's how we got started with this. 
You are the man who understands 3D modeling for you know, not just AAA games, but also for defense and simulation. So I'm glad that you've taken the time to have a chat with us to share your knowledge. For those people that are listening to this, are new to 3D modeling, from your perspective, what do you hope they're going to get out of this education episode? I could probably go on ad nauseum about technical details. What I'm hoping to do is provide something like an overview of the process, different phases involved, maybe some information about the distribution of work, uh, where most the bulk of the work actually is, perhaps some, something about trends that I have observed in the industry over the last 10 years and where I think uh, things might be going. Maybe we can even have a debate about visual fidelity and <laughs> its influence on transfer of skills and knowledge to the trainee, because ultimately that's what this is all about. I tend to believe that creating high quality, aesthetically pleasing and consistent environments are important to the overall training experience and helps with the buy-in of the trainee. And so this is why I think it's worthwhile to discuss this subject. Yeah. And optimization, don't forget that. Of course, optimization as well. <laughs> and I don't mean to brag, but I literally wrote the book on <laughs> making models for VBS. I love a bit of a brag, a humble brag, as we call it. So I like that. <laughs> throw some grenades in. So, so, so Chris, it's probably fair to say that the skills and the processes involved in 3D modeling from, say, earlier image generators has sort of developed quite a lot and it's quite a complex process now requiring different skill sets different tools so could you start just by giving us an overview of the sort of process that's involved for more modern engines the basic overview of the process is you really start with a design phase in the design phase you're defining requirements next you're going to start the the real work. So you can basically divide the work into pre-production, production, and post-production. So design is going to be pre-production. Your production is going to be the modeling and texturing where you actually create the 3D and 2D assets that are required as inputs for your image generator or game engine. Then there's a post-processing step, which is where you're doing any kind of rigging animation setup as well as uh, configuration and importing it to the game engine for testing and release. Distribution of this work is perhaps 10% pre-production, 65% production. The remainder is going to be your post-production. A lot of people think about modeling as just that production segment where you're talking about modeling and texturing the 3D and 2D assets, but you don't think about the work that goes into defining what you actually need to do during production and the post-processing. What are the requirements to get this thing actually functioning in the engine? So starting on that first piece, uh, sort of design and scoping, it appears you're, you're saying that that's kind of critical because it depends on what the model's going to be used for. I guess there's a number of considerations you're going to make. Yeah, it's important because this is where you're effectively setting expectations. If you're talking about an internal production team, of course, I've worked in both situations where I've worked as part of a content creation team at a company making a product. And now I'm functioning more as a, almost like a consultant to primes who are the ones that are creating the products and we're, we're a vendor providing the service. Effectively, in my experience, the project will succeed or fail in the planning phase. In many cases, when I'm interacting with clients in the industry, they'll come from a technical or a management background and not necessarily understand the content creation pipeline. And people will often think it's sufficient to say, I need a 3D model of an M2A3 Bradley, and here's a picture of it. When can I expect to receive my model? And what your task is to effectively spend several hours consulting with them, helping them to think through what are their requirements? What's the target engine, the file format requirements? 
what shader are we talking about? Are we using PBR-based materials, or is it going to be the previous generation specular gloss? Um, animation requirements, What part, which parts of the model need to articulate? Uh, any special functionality, like uh, do we need shadow buffers? Do we need collision geometry? Do we need uh, thermal imaging functionality, for example, in simulation? And so just for our listeners that are probably not so familiar with all this, it's it probably a bit much to go into all of these aspects, but when you talk about shaders, like what is a shader? What, what are these elements that you're right. trying to describe? Oh, uh, yeah. So when we talk about shaders, we I guess maybe people will discuss shaders and materials interchangeably. So when you have an image generator, the image generator is creating a picture of an environment usually and some 3D models. So you'll have static and dynamic models. So static is the, the environment, the dynamic are the things like vehicles and avatars. And in order to distinguish the difference between types of materials, for example, a tree, a tree bark versus chromed metallic wheels, you expect the chrome is going to reflect a lot more light than the tree bark will. The tree bark will diffuse a lot more of the light. The chrome wheels will reflect a lot more of the light. So we use these uh, shaders, as we call them, in the image generator in order to allow physically based realities of of how light interacts with surfaces to take place and then within the model you're talking about geometry lots so we should say there's levels of detail there's fire geometry shadow geometry so a model isn't just what we might think as the shape of something there's a number of dimensions to that depends on the target engine in some cases you're almost uh, re- you create the model in its highest detail. And then for optimization reasons, you would like to generate what are called LOD LODs or um, levels of detail. So this would be a progressive reduction in the number of polygons from which the model is made. This helps the engine function in a more optimized manner so that you're rendering fewer polygons at further distances. So it's, it's a means of optimizing this, the scene based on distance from the camera. And ultimately, fewer polygons means better frame rate on the engine, which means that a better training experience for the, for the user. Yes, generally speaking, that's true. In general, it's funny, it's being a little cyclical. It used to be in the past that textures were more of a burden for game engines. And then it became that uh, polygons were more of a burden. And now I think it's coming back where newer advancements in rendering technologies, for example, and not limited to nanite meshes in newly released Unreal 5, where it's, it's again going back to a situation where larger amounts of polygons do not necessarily mean poorer performance. So it's probably fair to say there's sort of this trade-off going on between your polygon count, your textures, probably even, as you say, what engine you're using and then what hardware, what graphics cards you're using because they all have ability to process things faster. So how do you get to that direct answer? What's the process balancing out all those requirements? You work usually for a technical artist, someone who focuses on pipeline and defining requirements for a given product before production starts. We can generalize the trend. We might touch on this a little bit later on, but this is effectively the reason why the industry has moved towards utilizing high poly modeling and texture baking onto low poly models. The reason is because of this performance trade-off. You get to have all the nice small details 
from your high poly model baked into what's called a normal map, and we can get there a little bit later on. But the, the process of uh, discerning which situation is more optimized for your product is a little bit engine specific. It can be slightly trial and error. And there are people who spend their entire careers on that subject, figuring out what's the right balance. So before we move on to that, it's probably worth just covering off the data requirement. And this might surprise some people, but what are the sort of range of sources of data that you work with? Data as inputs for for modeling. Yeah, yeah. In, inputs, so the source for creating that model. How, how do you go about that? A lot of the times we will do our own photo reference gathering. And in most cases or many cases, it's just open source finding photos on the internet. There are many communities of people who really nerd out about military equipment and every single thing you can imagine can be found online in some kind of photo album, which is great for us. And we also look for technical drawings or blueprints because that really helps us. A lot of times we have requirements where we need to have less than 5% margin of error between the resulting 3D model that we make and the real-life dimensions. When we can find technical drawings or blueprints, that's that's very key. The most accurate, greatest precision we can achieve usually comes as a result of other 3D scanning techniques such as photogrammetry, laser scan. Worked on several projects where people have given us laser scans for helicopter or helicopters or aircrafts, both the uh, airframes, the exterior, and the and the cockpit's interior. And we've utilized those to create ultra high detailed procedure training type. Uh, VR experiences. Going back to what's your requirement, what are you trying to do will determine whether one 3D scan is appropriate or you can do it from photos or a mix. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. In most cases, it's enough for us just to have photo references. In the case where we're being asked to create a procedure trainer or in one case, we're asked to make a uh, pre-trip inspection product where you're in the position of a civilian tractor trailer inspector and you have to check even down to the tread depths of the tires how much oil is in the engine and so we were working with cad data from the manufacturer created something extremely detailed from doing so and and you're right the requirement is driven by its intended use which is a design question yes useful primer to this you get that early work done right and then it prevents mistakes or problems down the line so moving on to the modeling process which i think is sort of another layer down and there's going to be lots of terminologies we're going to have to stop you and get you to explain on this (laughs) but depending on the engine this will vary i guess this this isn't always the same for each image generator or each game engine is that right Okay, so just very quickly for those who don't know, what an image generator is, there there isn't really a standardized definition, but to put it very briefly, it's just, it's a program that creates the picture of what's being simulated. Perhaps the, the simplest definition. So digging into the modeling process now, and I think this is this is where it gets a bit heavy, but it's probably worth understanding some of these the phases. If you just take us through, once you've gone through that design phase, uh, got the requirements and, and just what your source data is, what's the, and, and, and again, I guess this will vary depending on what engine or image generator you're using. Yes, there are. <laughs> it can be a, a too, a, too hard a question. <laughs> there isn't really a right answer on which pipeline to use for modeling. It, it again, it usually is going to be a question answered by the technical artists before a project kicks off. One of the challenges that we face a lot in the defense industry is we're using these legacy simulators and legacy image generators that have been around for decades. 
And in terms of rendering technology, they haven't necessarily been kept up to date or, ke or kept up with feature parity compared to the wider real-time rendering industry. What I mean by that is effectively video games. The, the video games industry has progressed by leaps and bounds. There's a lot more competition. It's an open system. They're not necessarily competing for limited government funding. They're going directly to consumers and they've been able to make vast investments into keeping their technology up to date and innovating. And the defense space, there just hasn't been as much need for that. So you find a huge variety in requirements for these image generators that are typically used. So if I think of something like open flight, usually you need to make highly optimized models and textures that are going to be using far fewer polygons and wouldn't be using things like normal maps. So in that case, you're going to use just a low poly model and a diffuse texture. All the way up through now, a lot of people, I've already mentioned Unreal 5, a lot of people are, there's a lot of buzz in our industry about using Unreal Engine. Unreal Engine supports physically based rendering and global illumination. So you can make really pretty images now with no additional production cost, really. In this case, you want to be using high poly models and utilizing these shader-based technical bitmaps, these textures like ambient occlusion maps and normal maps, and we'll get down there. It's the model technique that you use depends on the engine that, that you're targeting. So there's a number of terms that are commonly used across these engines, and it's probably worth just taking us through those don't necessarily apply to all but are common for most game engines you can take us through that yeah so for people who may not be aware what the difference between a high poly model and a low poly model is a high poly model perhaps could be best thought of as a reference mesh and you can put as much 3d detail into it as you'd like so you can create models when they're subdivided that, that could be millions or tens of millions of polygons. But if you tried to import a model with that many polygons into a game engine or a, an image generator, you would you'd basically fry it. It wouldn't be able to run efficiently. You'd get one frame a second. So we can cheat a little bit by creating a high poly model. And then from that, retopologizing it's called, which is when you use it as a 3D reference and you generate a model, a second model that has far fewer polygons. So it works in a far more optimal fashion inside of the image generator. Why do you do this at all? Well, it's because you can use that high poly mesh to what's called bake a texture, which is where you can use a special kind of technical texture that encodes in red, green, and blue colors, the direction that light is reflecting from a particular surface. And when you do this, you're able to fake a much greater degree of 3D detail based on how light is reflecting from the surface of the model, which can be set by those shaders that we talked about earlier. The shaders determine how light interacts with your model. And these normal maps can, can allow you to influence how the light is reflecting from your model. So you can fake reflections uh, from, so, from... So essentially, for those to, who can't quite picture it, it's... You might have a flat surface, geometrically it's flat, but it looks like there's a bump on it because of exactly. the, the baking and the, and the normal maps. Exactly. And in fact, back in the day, the first textures that used to do this were called bump maps, <laughs> specifically for that reason. Well, let's, let's figure out a way to use a texture to make it look like a surface is bumpy. Let's call it a bump map. After that, they called it a normal map because that's the more technical term for the modeling of how light reflects from a surface. It's reflected based off of the polygonal vertex normals. Just you know, that, now we're getting down to, into the technical nitty gritty. But well, it, and it's useful to understand the sort of entomology of this stuff. 
What are the other techniques then, if you take us through that? Yeah, well, once you've created your model, let's just say for the sake of, of an example, we're, we're making a vehicle model. We made the high poly model. We retopologized uh, some geometry and now we have a low poly model. The next thing you do is you have to create a UV map. And a UV map, it, you could also just consider it sort of like an XY coordinate based system. Okay, so imagine you've gone hunting for deer and you, you got yourself a nice trophy buck and you want to butcher it or perhaps you want to collect the skin because you want to make, I don't know, make clothes out of your, your deer that you just got. So you have to think about how would you actually skin that deer? Well, usually you would you put a cut under under the gut and then down the legs and around the ankles and around the neck. And then you get a nice, you can get a, a flat skin from that. Well, it's exactly what we're doing with UV mapping, except instead of a, instead of a deer. He's like a skinning tank. a tank. Yes, that, is, yes. that is possibly the best analogy we've had in the season so far. Yeah, so no. thank you and, and keep going. <laughs> I, mean, I would use, I would use an orange as an example, but let's go with the deer. <laughs> I should have said a Not bear. Forget this, are you? <laughs> I should have said a bear in a bearskin rug. Nobody really skins <laughs> like deer, right? <laughs> Hunt for yeah. hunters out there. Right, this so, is going to be dull. It's not going to be dull. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, instead of skinning a deer, you're skinning a tank. And if you think. <laughs> And it's the same idea. It's the exact same idea. It's just different shapes. You're having to make cuts along changes in plane, essentially. So with a tank, it doesn't have legs or ankles or anything like that, but you have to flatten out the hull, the top of the hull, the sides of the hull. So you make simulated cuts, we'll say, in the model along the different directional planes, X, Y, and, and this, Z space. And this is because the computer will have all of those textures and maps and, and it needs to understand what that, take that from a flat plane and put it, wrap it around this shape. Exactly. That's what's going on. And yeah, to use a, an analogy, if we were going to create a 3D model of planet Earth, that's a, a round thing, which exists in three dimensions. And if you want to put a texture on it, a texture is a two-dimensional thing. So how do you make a two-dimensional thing interact with a three-dimensional thing? Well, you, you need to give it a coordinate-based reference so that it knows where to overlay which pixel from the texture over which part of the model. You're basically skinning your tank, in our example, flattening all of its different surfaces out in 2D space. And we call this coordinate system instead of XY, we call it UV. I don't know the history why that UV was chosen chosen instead of XY, but, but it was. And this will allow you to be able to designate which pixel on your texture belongs where on the tank. Okay, that clears that up for me. And once you've done that, what's the next step? This is when you get to your texture baking, which is what I've already referenced to a couple of times earlier when we we're talking about modeling. Once you have your UV coordinate system, you can now take the data, the lighting data that you can generate from your high poly model and project it onto your low poly model. So you don't UV map the high poly mesh, you UV map your low poly mesh. And you use the high poly mesh as a 3D reference because your software, your 3D software will raycast, which is where it will put your, this is done automatically. It puts your 3D model into an environment and then it casts simulated rays of light at it from every different direction and then records the result of the reflection. Then it transposes that reflection result into a 2D texture. It's, it's technical, but hopefully that 
sort of makes sense. And it knows where to put those reflection results based on your UV coordinate system because you've skinned your tank. So now it's simulating the reflection of light from your tank and it's recording where the light is reflecting and writing it into a 2D texture. And you can generate a whole bunch of different data from this. So one thing you could do is to record where are the shadows collect. Where the shadows collect, this is called the ambient occlusion, ambient light. Where is your ambient light being occluded from? Where are shadows? The other thing we already talked about is the normal map. The normal map is recording how light is interacting with the surface of the high poly model, and it records it in such a way that it can be visualized on the low poly model without having to have the 3D details in place, as we've already talked about. You could also create something that's called a curvature map, and this is important for texturing because it shows you where your plane changes are. And you could even create procedural textures that can add dirt and scratches in places that are appropriate based on your normal map, your ambient occlusion map, and your curvature map. You can get a very nice texturing result with minimal manual input if you're very creative using these baked textures, as they're called. All these techniques build up in, in layers effectively to create the effect that you want? Is that, exactly. Is that so the ambient occlusion map and your normal map, and in some cases your curvature map, are usually inputs to your shader, to your material, that will eventually be integrated into your engine. And it, it's giving your image generator lighting information about how light should interact with your 3D model. So they work together to, to make a very compelling 3D result, even on two-dimensional planes, to get your bump and your shadowing and your correct uh, shading of the material. And this really has become standard because uh, th texture authoring software used to be that we used, I don't know, maybe even some people go back as far as MS Paint, but <laughs> I only ever used Photoshop. And Photoshop used to be the de facto industry standard for generating these textures. And now everything has moved to 3D authoring, which is where you're basically loading your 3D model into a self-contained 3D rendering software, and you're able to paint directly onto the surface in three dimensions, which is, in terms of productivity, is a huge innovation for the 2D artists. So once that sort of, you know, the textures are there and the geometry, take us through what you then need to do to get that into the game or the engine. Once you have all of the inputs that you need, you're exporting them from your source software. In many cases, it could be 3D Studio Max for the model. And for the textures, it's oftentimes Substance Painter, which has really quickly become an industry standard. You export those as uh, formats that are relevant for your game engine. And then you need to do some form of material configuration. You're importing these to your image generator or your game engine, and then you are configuring how the model and textures will interact with one another and how light will be influenced as a result. This is an entire, you could spend an entire podcast or series of podcasts on just that process right hmm. there, talking about how, how to set up beautiful, distinct materials on a composite object made out of many materials and just having one set of texture. That material tuning in modern game engines often takes place inside of the engine. If we are talking about legacy engines or image generators, such as VBS, this material configuration is oftentimes taking place outside of the game engine. And then you have to have a second step to check it inside of the game engine. And another thing is I'm, I'm realizing as I'm, I'm switching back and forth between the defense lingo 
and the games lingo, because I've spent time on both sides. And I'm realizing that in the defense industry, we talk about avatars instead of characters. We talk about image generators instead of game engines. It's like we've created our distinct lingo. And I hope that me switching back and forth isn't confusing anybody. Well, it's probably worth just wrapping up or, or taking us from the point that we output the model in our modeling software and then getting that into a functioning avatar or vehicle within that engine or image generator, what do we then need to do next? Once you have your material set up, a lot of times you'll need to do actual game configuration and the configuration of animations. So after you've exported your model, you're typically having, if it needs to move, if it's content and it needs to be articulatable, then it needs to be rigged. This is a process where you are designating parts of the 3D model as movable objects. And then you need to create a configuration for the engine to understand which parts of the model move. For vehicles, it's a little more straightforward because you're talking mainly about rotations, translations. When it comes to characters, you're doing a lot of blending between rotation and translation at the same time. It becomes a little bit more complicated. But yeah, this is the process of rigging, which uh, marks which parts of the model can be moved and in which ways. Once you have that, that's an additional input. You have your texture inputs, you have your animation inputs. You will need a model configuration input, which is the behavior, the, the simulation or functionality of the model. If, again, the example of a Bradley IFE, it needs to have a cannon, a coaxial machine gun, a tow launcher, its tracks need to move, and etc. You need an inventory system. It, you have to keep track of how much ammo it has. So then that's, that becomes an input. And once all of those things are together, then you basically have, ta-da, a working model. The main difference on the simulation side is the performance characteristics or the, the weapons effects needs to be correct. So you have to do a, some, some degree of testing and verification mm -hmm. for that. Oh, yeah. We didn't even talk about VFX. You've brought it up. The effects need to be correct. <laughs> That's another input. Um, yeah. In addition to the, the 3D model, the 2D textures, the shader material configuration, the animation configuration, and the functionality configuration, you need VFX, which are things like the muzzle flash for a gun. When you fire it, it makes a flame, a ball of flame. It emits some smoke. When the bullet hits something, it has some kind of visual effect as a result. When you fire a tow missile, you see a rocket flame coming out of the back of it, and then it explodes. So all of those are additional assets that need to be created by another type of artistic specialty, a VFX artist, which becomes its own distinct input. And on, on that note, talking about that, the whole process, and thank you for doing an amazing job at turning something that's extremely complicated into something that is easier to follow. Still, you know, still, still complicated. Still, still complicated, <laughs> still but you know, easier to I'm follow, sorry. certainly. I think it's important to know, like, this is not one 3D artist doing all of these. Could you just talk through 3D artists? You've got weapon artists, vehicle artists, character artists, rigor. Mm -hmm. Can you just go through all the kind of roles yeah. within that process just briefly? Yeah, that's actually true to make this example of the Bradley again. So you start off in the beginning, you have the designer, the person documenting the requirements, gathering the references, etc. You pass this off. In some cases, it could be a dedicated person that specializes only on making high poly models. And sometimes that's more efficient. You just have a guy that his thing is he makes all the high poly models. He passes it to the next artist, which will make a low poly, who passes it uh, low poly and a UV map usually, passes it off to somebody who will do the textures. And then that person passes it to the rigger, set it up, get it ready for articulation. The animator 
the VFX artist, and finally the person, the integrator, the person responsible for tying it all together. So how many was that? <laughs> six, six yeah. people involved in the in the creation of uh, one three D model from start to finish, uh, and we didn't even talk about the QA testers, so we can't forget them. <laughs> testers always get left out of this equation. Chris, thank you. I think that's an excellent overview of the process. It's good to learn a bit more about some of these terms that we hear when we're involved in this, but we actually don't know what they mean. Uh, so that's a really good refresher. If people want to know a bit more, how do they get in touch with you? Vigilante.us. Find us there, send us an email, or I don't know, I probably don't want to be giving out my, my own email. I end up getting all kinds of spam. But... Fa- it's not spam, it's fan mail, Chris. Yeah. Fan mail. I'll be the first one to send it to you. Yes. <laughs> we get enough of that. Thank you. <laughs> Well, you're skinning analogies. Perfect. <laughs> Thanks so much again and uh, look forward to hopefully having you back on the show in the near future. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Look forward to it.